Kelly and John Klingen and Gary Williams to join me up here. Just some, some something, some something, a little some something before we go on with the sermon. Um, I want to just, I want to bring, oh, thank you, Kevin. You can, you can come back. Um, <laughs> we, uh, when we launched Emmaus Road, we started um, with a core team for a year and a half in my living room. And then we, we worked our way up uh, the first two or three years. We eventually got some elders. And then those elders uh, in the last two or three years have had to move away for jobs, with the exception of Gary. Um, so, we, so we had kind of reached this place where we had, we had this goal of being self-governing. That's one of the three things. We, we want to be self-sustaining, self-replicating, self-governing. And, and so we had attained self-governance at that point. And then COVID hit, jobs dried up, and two of our elders had to move out of state. And so, so, so we took this big step backwards in being self-governing. But today, we move back into the place of being self-governing in the, in the fullest sense, in the, in the healthy sense of the word. And so I want to just introduce you guys to, you, you know John Klingen, you know Olin Kelly, you've seen these men up front. We all know Gary. Um, God bless Gary. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you. Um, and, and Kevin, but I, I want to, what we're going to do this morning is install these two men as elders in our church. And so, yeah, yeah amen, amen. So I'm just, I want you to know as your pastor, I'm elated about this. These guys have uh, gone through a, a process with Gary and myself. We've asked them lots of questions, uh, probing questions, personal questions, the kind of questions that would make you squirm, possibly. And, and they have just answered every question, and, and their hearts and their character shines with the light of Jesus in the midst of all that. And we're so grateful to have them. And so I'm going to uh, I'm gonna ask a couple of questions of the elder candidates, and I'm going to ask you guys if you'll just respond to the questions with I will. And if you can't say I will, then just run for the door. Okay? Um, so... <laughs> Start, we'll give you a head start. Ready? And then, and then when, I've, when I've questioned the, the elder candidates, I, I have a couple of questions for you as our congregation. Because your support of these men is just as important as their support of our church. And so, um, elder candidates, gentlemen, w will you pursue and strive for unity, of the unity of this church, committing yourself humbly to a ministry of biblical peacemaking and reconciliation. In dependence upon Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, will you continue to strive to love your wife as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for you? Good, good. Because your, your wives are going to rush the stage and, and you had to, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. <laughs> Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as an elder, whether private or public? And will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the, profession, uh, the prof professing of the gospel in your manner of life, walking with exemplary piety before our congregation? Are you now willing to take personal responsibility as an elder by God's grace to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer and the ministry of the word to shepherding God's flock in such a way that Emmaus Road Church will be blessed and built up and protected against false teaching and division? Okay. Congregation, church, do you... The members of Emmaus Road Church acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders, as gifts from God to our church. Will you love them and pray for them as they minister and work together with them humbly and cheerfully, submitting to these men and giving them all due honor and support in the leadership to which the Lord has called them? Amen. All right. Well, then, church, it's my privilege to tell you we've got some new elders as officially today. So make sure before you leave today, shake these guys' hands, give them a hug, encourage them. They've, they've taken a heavy mantle on themselves in the church, 
And, uh, and the Lord has led them to that, but, but it's not always an easy thing to be an elder. So just love these guys and encourage them. Would you do that for me? All right, let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these men. Thank you for uh, the gift that they are to me, all four of the guys here on this stage, Lord. And I, and I just thank you, Lord, for your provision for your church. It's not always in our timing. I, I, I would have loved this sooner, but your timing is perfect, and you know exactly what you're doing. And we celebrate and receive what you've provided for Emmaus Road today. And we pray it all back to you in the name of Jesus, your son, who loves us and guides us and fills us with his spirit. In his, his name that we pray. Amen. And if you guys will hold on just one second here. Um, this is overdue. This is a certificate of eldership that belongs to this gentleman right here who's been doing that for a while. And then I think you're Olin Kelly, aren't you? Okay, and John, and um, yeah, thank you guys. Let's give them another round of applause. Yeah. That, that really is, you guys maybe don't, can't relate or understand like as a lead pastor and church planter to get to the place where you have biblically, uh, qualified elders as a covering, as an authority and a covering over the church is such a big deal. It's such a big deal. And I'm so glad that we've, we've gotten there. Um, so let's, let's think now about uh, healthy growth. We're in this section of Jesus's teachings. He's telling lots of parables and lots of these parables have to do with things that grow. And so it was, um, I was reading this week, it was William James who wrote I'm done with great things. It was the title of his little essay. In one of his letters, this philosopher and psychologist shared this conviction, William James, that he, he didn't really want to focus on big, grand things. He wanted to focus on small, little things. He thought those things were more important. In fact, he said this. William James said, I'm done with great things and big things, great institutions and big success. And I am for those tiny invisible molecular moral forces that work from individual to individual, creeping through the crannies in the world like so many little rootlets, yet which, when you give them time, they rend the hardest monuments of man's pride. It is the small things that have the greatest impact over time. We, we tend to think about big, and we want big impact and big results. But here's William James saying, it's actually the small things. His faithfulness over time that makes a huge impact. He rightly points out that mankind's usually obsessed with big and grandiose, and we tend to overlook the importance of small things. I mean, think about that. Think about where we live, you know, in America. We love big. Bigger's better, right? That's, that's kind of our default setting as Americans. And we're proud. And, and, and I could go on about Western culture and, and Western values, but what I want to say is simply that we, we, we tend to focus on a lot of the wrong things in this life and in the process miss many of the things God is doing in the mundane. We're so enamored with the novelty or the big, we miss some of the things that God's doing every day all around us. Things that he's doing in small places and in small ways. Things that he's doing in and through average, everyday, faithful people who aren't in the spotlight and don't have prestige or fame or power. I, I, I was just... It just reminds me even just now, when we were in, in Georgia for eight days, we got to see so many people. One of the unexpected encounters we got to have was we had an hour, hour and a half lunch with Dave and Nancy Johnson. Now, Dave was my director in, in the campus ministry I served in. He was over me for many years until I became the director of that ministry. And it was such an unexpected, unexpected blessing to sit down with this couple because they're so unassuming. They're just faithful. They've just been faithful on the campus for like 30 years. And, it, and then if you look at how many people they have discipled and then how many people those people have discipled, you can stand back and just go, oh my gosh, that impact is huge. What they've done in the lives of college students who've gone on to impact other people and the secondary effect of that is just enormous. But you wouldn't you wouldn't automatically go there if you just sat down for lunch with anything. Oh, this is an unassuming older couple and 
Uh, they're in their, you know, in their late 60s, early 70s, and they're nice people. You wouldn't see all of what God has done through them. And so it's been said, <coughs> uh, he who has never been humbled cannot be great. Humility is the true test of greatness. And I believe that to be true. This is why Jesus is the greatest man to ever live on the earth. Because there's nobody more humble, thus no one more great than Jesus. And, and we've spent a, a good deal of time in previous weeks talking about how the kingdom is inverted, right? We've talked about that. And, and those seeking applause and accolades are going to find themselves humbled. And, and those who humble themselves in the kingdom, Jesus said, that they're going to be exalted. So this kingdom is an inversion. It's a 180 degree departure from the default settings of this world. And in this kingdom, small things can be incredibly potent and incredibly powerful. The size of a thing is not necessarily proportional to its potency, to its effectiveness or its importance. And that's something we got to keep in mind as born again believers in Jesus, because we tend to look still with our physical eyes and we're often wrong about what we perceive. We see the world around us in the physical and we assume things, but if we could see with spiritual eyes, we'd see a different world. And so to be back in the kingdom, uh, to be in the kingdom means that we need to look through spiritual eyes informed by God's word. And what we think to be good at first glance can actually be harmful. And that which we overlook due to its plainness and lack of shimmer can actually turn out to be priceless in the kingdom of God. So with that in mind, with that inversion in mind, let's go to the text this morning. And we're, we're back in Mark chapter 4. This is, if you, if you got your harmony of the Gospels, it's section 84. We're in Mark 4, 26. And, and so Jesus is still telling these parables. And remember why he did that. He did that to obscure the truth so that he could go to the cross so that we could have salvation. Okay? <coughs> So Mark 4, 26 to 29, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So, Right off the bat, Jesus reminds us that these parables are about the nature of God's kingdom. And remember that Jesus has established for his disciples that his teaching in parables is for them. It's not for the outsiders. That, that's going to be true for the duration of Jesus's earthly ministry, but it will cease to be true once he's gone to the cross and then ascended back into heaven. Then the gospel's for everybody to understand plainly, okay? But we're simply told that the kingdom is as if a man scattered seed on the ground. And, and that sounds like a, lot, a lot like the parables we've already looked at. We impact last week. But notice the dichotomy in this parable. The man scatters seed, the seed sprouts and grows. And that tells us something very important in this parable. This tells us that mankind has responsibility and that God has responsibility in this relationship. See, there are Christians today who believe that man bears all the responsibility. And I, I don't even know if those people would actually be, like if you don't think that God has some responsibility, I don't, I'm not sure where the gospel comes in. Okay? And then there are other people who say, well, it's all up to God. It's 100% God, 0% man. And, 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 I, and I just don't see that in the scripture either. It's, it's, it's both. We both have responsibility, though certainly not exhaustive. Um, some of those responsibilities include for us the responsibility to love, love our families, love our neighbors, love the people in the church, love people who do wrong to us. We've got to pretty much love everybody, I think. I think that's, it's like all encompassing. And to do what is right and to teach what is right. We, we have responsibility. And God has taken on responsibility as well. He creates, he sustains, he loves, he's given us his word, he creates good things for us to enjoy. I mean, just stop and think about cake. <laughs> he creates good stuff. He leads us when we ask him to, when we stop and we pray, we spend time communing with him. He leads us. 
And all this is his idea. This is how he set it up. So, so we see this in the parable where the seed of the gospel has a life and a power of its own. And again, we, we talked about this last week. Uh, it speaks to the sufficiency of God's word. All the farmer can do is plant the seed in suitable ground. He can't make it grow. He doesn't even understand how it grows. The kingdom of God grows because of the mysterious power of the seed, which we said last week is God's word, right? It's the mysterious power of the seed to produce a crop. So just thinking practically about this parable of the seed that grows, one of the outcomes here is certainty of a harvest. There's going to be a reaping. There's going to be a gathering of the fruit from this, this seed. It's going to produce fruit. We don't know how much, but there's going to be fruit. And the parable seems to be establishing that there's some element of mystery here for us. We don't know how. We don't understand all the ways in which God's word and his will works in us and through us and around us. But in our present age, God's kingdom grows according to his will. He does it. So there's a mystery here. There's an element of mystery and things that we don't fully understand. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, So let's keep going. Section 85 Matthew 13. So we're back into Matthew's gospel and and we're looking at verses 24 to 30. He put another parable before them and said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And we're doing great so far. He sowed and he sowed good seed. That's good. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The servant of the master of the house came out and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, would you want us to go and gather them? He said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up also the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so so let's go back and look at this. An enemy sowed tares. Tares, that that means uh, weeds. We use the word weeds here in the the text. Um, A tare was a darnel weed prevalent in Israel at that time, I think even today, largely indistinguishable from wheat until the wheat matures and and you can see the kernels on the stalk. That's when you know you have wheat or you open those little things and there's nothing. And it's like, that's kind of, oh, that was a bummer. I was expecting wheat. I got nothing. And you don't know, right, until it's fully grown. These people start out, so this is all about people, right? He's using wheat, but it's about people. And these people start out incognito. They generally blossom into false converts and and false leaders in the church. They're right alongside genuine Christians. And they look the same until they're mature, until until they've grown. In other words, at some point where there should be maturation in fruit, they begin to show that there is none. And so some people go their whole lives playing at being a Christian. And I know I was one of those until my senior, my second senior year of college. I don't know how many senior years you can have, but I had two. Um, I, I was just playing at being a Christian. I knew all the right things to say. I had grown up in church. I knew what church life was about. I could, I could put that on. And it wasn't until that second senior year that God confronted me with my, the reality of my sin. Um, I, I claimed to know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But there was no fruit at all in my life. And that's how you know. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. It's all about the produce. It's all about the fruit. Such was the case. You, you can read uh, John, uh, 3 John about Diotrephes. As John writes about him and, and his, his disappointment in him, you can read about the false apostles mentioned in Revelation 2, um, false teachers all through the New Testament. And it's all about the fruit. It's all about the fruit. 
So this enemy who sowed the tares, he did it at night and he did it in the darkness. And that was intriguing to me this week because Ephesians 6 tells us, Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. It's darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, okay, so darkness is this consistent idiom or this, this picture uh, and in fact, Jesus, when he's speaking to Saul in Acts 26, remember, he's knocked him off his horse and he's having this conversation and, and, and Saul's just like can't even look at, at the glorified Jesus. Um, so Jesus speaks to Saul and he says, rise up and get on your feet. I've appointed you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, which automatically implies they're going to try to kill you, okay? To whom, to whom I'm sending you, specifically there to the Gentiles. He says, I'm going to deliver you from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness for sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here's this consistent use of this Darkness and light, darkness and light. I, I'll give you one more. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. Uh, this is such a great promise in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. See, I don't know if you knew this, but you used to live at 666 Lucifer Way. And then God backed the moving truck up and he got all your stuff and he took you out of there. He moved you out of there. This, um, but this, this work of Satan, this, this thing that he's doing, he's sowing tares. He, he's, it, he knows that when uh, the harvest time comes, if they just go out there and start, you know, if they, if they do it prematurely, it's going to tear up the good produce. And so they have to just wait until everything's matured. Uh, pulling up the tares would damage the wheat. So he sends uh, enemies of the gospel into the church to confuse matters. Like, let's just take this out of the field and into the church. Satan sends people to come in and confuse things. He loves, he loves to get false doctrine going in the church. And it's much easier, like the bigger the church, the easier it is to do because you can hide, right? And so a uh, current example would be something like critical race theory. Oh my gosh, how did that get how is it that people are adopting? I, it, just, it just wriggled its way in. It just wriggled its way in. And churches in, in Western culture, it's, it's like they're sowing tears in the church and, and, and we're all too ready to grab onto something new. It's novelty mostly. We, we like new and exciting. It's a function of consumeristic mindsets instead of having the mind of Christ. And so what's God's solution? Well, God says, here's what I want you to do in the church. Teach the word. <laughs> Just teach the word and then challenge people to, to do, to live it out. To challenge people to embrace orthodoxy and live out the word. Love them, disciple them, get the word in them and, and get them sharing their faith. It's really just that simple, right? And when people won't, when, when people flatly refuse to do anything other than just sit and soak, and invite them to try other churches. That, I, it's a little term I, I, early in church planting, we decided to call it out-counseling. Sometimes you have to out-counsel someone. So, oh, well, okay, you've been here for a year and you've, you've left an imprint in the seat that you sit in every week, but that's it. It's time to engage in the gospel. And, and, and when they flatly refuse, you know, it's like, oh, I want to invite you to try another church I think you'd be happier in. That's called out counseling. And somebody would say, oh, pastor, that just sounds so harsh. And I just want to say to you, it is. It is. And when things have come to that point, it generally has to be. Jesus says that what is sown in the heart will eventually show itself for what it really is. It will show itself. It'll show itself to be good fruit, a harvest or it will show itself to be tares. It'll look good on the outside, but it will have no substance. 
And under, as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, I'm tasked with being a fruit inspector. Some of y'all are way fruity. But, but if the worst you've ever known is being disciplined in the church, that was for your benefit. That's a good thing. And if you can't embrace that and heed that, it only gets worse from there. Okay? Jesus says that the crop is gathered on the day of judgment and is separated or judged for what it really is. The good wheat, that which produced fruit as a sign of true salvation, was gathered into God's barn or his storehouse in heaven. The tares, which produced no fruit, were cast into the fire of hell. They looked good on the outside, but inwardly they were never surrendered. They were never submitted to Jesus. They were not saved. Now you tell me, is it loving to pass over the tares and let them go on pretending and end up in eternal torment? Or to say something hard? Which is better? It's more loving to confront people now, to say hard words to someone, to risk offending them in order for them to see the truth about themselves. We're talking about eternity. See, some of, some, some of us in the church need to grow a backbone. Uh, the church today has an abundance of evangelifish. The Christians without spines. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is confront and rebuke someone in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know my testimony, then you know that it was three young women in the music department at the college I was attending on scholarship that took me to lunch that day, sat me in a corner where I couldn't escape, and then blew me up. They did this. They did this exact thing to me. And I had no idea. I couldn't see it coming because my ego was so overinflated. I was like, they all want to date me. And they're going to work out a rotation system. It's going to be awesome. And we sat down and I was locked in the corner. They said, you call yourself a Christian man. And we are dying for a lack of leadership in the music department. And they just lit me up. And it was the most frustrating, embarrassing, hard, difficult thing for my heart to hear because my pride was offended. My ego, they poked holes in my ego and it was starting to deflate. And it was exactly what the Lord wanted for me. Without that confrontation, I don't know if I'd be standing in front of you today. Do hard things. Say hard things, but do it in love. Say it in love. This age will end when Jesus, the judge of the world, separates the weeds from the wheat. The weeds, all who do evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the wheat, those who are righteous, will be revealed and they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, the future kingdom which will appear at the ending of the age. God's justice will be fulfilled. And that's the point of this parable. So let's keep going. There's a, there's a, there's a theme emerging here with this, this whole thing of wheat and, and producing fruit. When we go to um, section 86, we're going to read Matthew 13, 31 and 32, and also Mark 4, 30 and 32. So let me just read both passages and then we'll, we'll unpack this. In Matthew 13, he put another parable before them and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it, it was larger than all the garden plants and became a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. Here's Mark's telling of, and remember Mark is Peter's gospel, but Peter was illiterate and couldn't write, so Mark wrote it for him. So, so here's Mark 4, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nests, their nests in its shade. And this, I want you to know, this is one of my favorite parables because when you actually parse it out, it surprises almost everybody. If you just read it casually, you go, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. A mustard bush, when it's fully grown, is usually about two or three feet high. That's about the biggest a mustard bush is going to get. The cedar trees in my backyard, are, they're between 70 and 90 feet high. Those are big trees. 
So this mustard seed, Jesus says, is growing to the size of a large tree. That is abnormal. That's not normal. And everybody listening to the parable, living in that land, having known about mustard seeds, would be like, whoa, that's a big mustard bush. That's abnormal. It becomes so large, in fact, that the birds of the air come and make their nests in it. Now, that doesn't sound like such a big deal to us at first. And, and, and don't we want people to come into the church? But we have to remember our consistent idioms, the word pictures that Jesus is using consistently here in the Gospels. The birds of the air are the ones that snatched away the seed that Jesus was using. Do you remember? And so the birds of the air, Jesus called them the messengers of the evil one. So let's look at this again. Take that explanation back into the parable. Jesus is saying that the church got so big that the messengers of the evil one could come in and be at home and not be seen for what they were. They could just roost among the fellowship of the believers. You know what we call that? We call that a megachurch. And I'm, and I'm not so sure it's a good thing. I'm, I'm not judging anybody else's work. Jesus will do that. He'll judge all of our work as, as believers, our works will pass through the fire and will show what they were really made of, whether gold and silver and precious jewels, Jesus says, or that those works will come through and it, it'll be wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. And I, I'm not judging anybody else's work. I'm just saying when it comes to the church, bigger is not always better. Yes, more resources allow us to do more ministry, but I think there's a limit somewhere. And I think in America, especially, we've just assumed a different interpretation of this parable because what Jesus is actually saying goes against our consumer mentality. He's saying it got so big, agents of evil could come in and, and, and ply their wares and, and lead people astray and bring in false doctrine and nobody even knew about it until it was too late. And I don't think that's healthy. So keep going here. Uh, section 87, this is Matthew 13, 33 to 35. He told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, the, the, the usual interpretation of, of the leaven is the gospel and the woman is the church. I hear that a lot. But given the consistency of Jesus' use of idioms, I don't think it's the case at all. Because of that interpretation, though, many people have thought at various times that the church was going to introduce the millennium to the world and that it would usher in the kingdom, even especially in the 1800s, which was a great age of scientific progress. Uh, it was widely held that the gospel would so permeate the whole world that Christianity would be universally accepted on the planet. We know that that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but that... It doesn't line up with the parables we've already deciphered. That interpretation doesn't line up. In fact, leaven is used consistently in the parables as a bad thing. Because matzah, or unleavened bread, was the staple of the day. As we've already seen, Jesus used leaven consistently as an idiom for false doctrine. So to unravel this parable, we've got to go back to Genesis 18. To the first mention of three measures of meal or, or, or grain in the, in the text of Scripture. During their conversation, if you go back to Genesis 18, it suddenly dawned on Abram that he was having a visitation by God and a couple of angels. These weren't just travelers. And that was the beginning of the use of the three measures of meal as a symbol for fellowship. So you go back, you, you can go back again to the Exodus um, in Egypt, before the Jews ate the first Passover meal, God sent them all throughout their houses with candles and lamps looking for what? Leaven, yeast, the stuff that makes dough rise. They were looking for leaven. They were trying to clear every little bit of it out of the house lest it get into the three measures of meal, the Passover feast, the unleavened bread. It was going to destroy the beauty of the symbolism uh, of being free from sin. So, so leaven is always a symbol of sin. Never once is leaven used as a symbol for anything good in Jesus's parables. And everyone in the crowd knew that this woman had no business putting leaven in three measures of meal. 
It was going to destroy the meaning of this significant offering. Scripture had taught them that three measures of meal was to be unleavened. So in the New Testament, if you, ha- if you find um, these distinctive usages of leaven, they always mean something bad. Okay, never ever in the scripture does leaven symbolize something good. So we, we see this uh, false doctrine, teachings infiltrating all aspects of the church until Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom on earth at the end of the tribulation or, or what we call Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble. And so uh, verse 34, Jesus continued, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then Mark 4, 33 and 34, just wrapping this up. With many such parables, he spoke the words to them and they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately in his own, with his own disciples, he explained everything. And we, we touched on that last week, just explaining that Jesus was obscuring his teachings to the crowds and making them only known to his disciples because his long, long game plan was to be crucified. And we read clearly, like if they had known who he was, that they'd understood they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And so he's going to the cross. He has made them these things plain with explanation, but only to his immediate disciples and not to the, not to the general public. So I want to give you a couple of handholds from these parables this morning. It'll help you apply some of these truths. Here's here's number one. Healthy growth is slow and steady. I think that applies to the individual Christian, and I think that applies to a church as well. Healthy growth is slow and steady. And maybe that comes as a surprise to you, but it shouldn't. I mean, if imagine your three-year-old toddler having suddenly overnight grown six feet tall and having the strength to pick you up. That'd be alarming. Suddenly, that little toddler has a lot of power. And power corrupts, right? Um, Actually, power doesn't corrupt. It's our our own sin, but that's another sermon for another day. Healthy growth is slow and steady, okay? You you could say that there was growth, but you'd be hard-pressed to convince anyone that it was good and healthy. Um, so why do we clap like North Koreans in a missile parade when a church plant goes from 30 to 500 in a year? Why? Because we assume that bigger is better. We, have, we still have that v- the very fleshly American thought process. And we automatically assume, well, that, that got big real fast. God's in that. Maybe. I don't know. I can't say that. Part, part of the answer to that equation, and, and I know this firsthand, is that church growth is a lucrative business. I get like, I don't know, 15 emails a week on different ploys and approaches to grow your church. You got to break the 300 barrier if you'll just do these five things and just send me 100 bucks for the instructions. I'm happy to get you to the, it's all over, it's in my inbox all the time. It's big business. It's big business. But I can look back in the 2000 year history of the church and I can see that there, there's faithful men and women rightly handling the, word, handling the word of truth, sacrificing their time and effort to make investments in people with the gospel and, 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 and teaching God's word. And those early churches didn't grow to 500 and then purchase the temple of Artemis so they could have a bigger that's not what happened. They, they split off. They, they planted more churches. So we, we've gotten too big. We, 50 people meeting in my house. We have to send half of you away to start another church. I love that. That's how the gospel spread. That's what I believe is missing right now in the American church model. Every time, man, I, I got off the plane from Atlanta and the next day I was in one of these. Every time I go to a regional or national conference or gathering, I am bombarded with speakers and leaders challenging me and others to go big. Make it big. Make it huge. Impact for Jesus in the kingdom. I'm not convinced that big makes the kind of impact that Jesus always wants. Maybe Sometimes it might. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying I'm not sure that's the solution. 
I hear people tell me all the time and tell other Christians, do great things for Jesus and his kingdom. Do great things for the church. But that's not what I see in the New Testament. I see a call to faithfulness. I see a call to shepherd the flock of God. A a good church planner or pastor knows that he, he just has to accept and embrace that much of the work that's before him is really just, is two things. It's tilling soil and breaking up hard ground. That's really, that's the, that's the bulk of what a good pastor does. Just got to till the soil, till the soil so that the seed can get in there, right? Break up the hard ground. It's hard work, but it has to be done. Healthy growth, whether in an individual or in a church, should be slow and steady. If, you're a, if you plant or if you pastor at some point, make sure you have a consistent Uh, method for connecting with new people and moving them through the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's, that's, That's the process of growth through the place where a person's bearing fruit and replicating themselves in other people. See, all of us need to sort out our responsibility from God's responsibility. Well, I think we just get confused. Sometimes we find ourselves trying to do the stuff that only God can do. And, and, and God's like, whoa, hey, uh, not going to work for you. But you can ask, and I'll do it, right? See, God's clearly given mankind some responsibilities, and embedded in that word responsibility is the ability to respond. We have the ability to respond to God's initiatives. And when it comes to the parables we've, we read today and, and even last week, redeemed mankind, saved people, clearly have the responsibility to sow the seed of the gospel. That's every single one of you. Regardless of you feel, whether you feel like that's your spiritual gift or not, we all are, are people that are supposed to be scattering the seed of the gospel wherever we go. And, and then we're supposed to tend the fields too, which means befriending our neighbors, encouraging the people around us, praying for people around us as they wrestle with the gospel, as they come to Jesus for the first time, as, they, as uh, our Christian brothers and sisters are, are, are wrestling with how to obey better day to day. We're supposed to come alongside them and and tend that as well. We participate in the harvest when we present the gospel for the first time or the 50th time. And then someone responds to that well-meant gospel offer. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel and had somebody come to Christ. It is the most incredible thing. It's like a drug in a good way. It's like, it's like a good drug. I don't know if that, it just, it's just, you want, you want it again. You're like, oh, that's the, that's the single most important thing a person can ever do is, is to share the gospel. Not to see a person come to Christ because that's not our, we don't get to choose that, right? But to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to, listen to the things. We're talking about our responsibility. God's given us responsibilities. We participate in the harvest when we present the gospel, right? We are told to guard the good deposit that God has put in us and others have made in us. We're commanded to scatter the seed as we go through the world. And that list goes on and on and on. But God has responsibilities too. He has already provided the seed for us. There's bags and bags and bags of seed. You're not going to run out of seed. So I just do it. I feel like I'm going to run out. I'm not going to have anything to say. No, no, no. Like the more you share your faith, the more you scatter seed, the more you, the more like articulate you get about it and the more direct you become and the more fun it is. And it's, it's amazing. He's already provided the seed. And, and then he's, he works and he labors alongside us and in us and through us. That's crazy to me. I love that. And then he sorts it all out at the end. He's the one who sorts it out. He separates the wheat from the chaff. And therefore God's word reminds us. He says, therefore, beloved, this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your first responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. And then he says this. He says, because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to act, for his good pleasure. His spirit in you is working in you to give you the strength and the courage to do the things we're talking about this morning. See, generally speaking, God seems to work primarily through small local bodies of Christ followers 
rather than big, sexy rock shows. You can whip up a crowd in a large church or an arena and play to the emotions and get people to raise their hands or come forward. And some of those conversions will be genuine, but it's mostly because if they're genuine, it's because other people have laid the groundwork usually, right? And it might sound like I'm just beating a dead horse with this, but bigger is really not always better, especially when it comes to planting churches or making disciples. You go back to Matthew 13. We looked at this last week. Or, or this morning, excuse me, the mustard seed that became the great tree, like all the cedars around here, it's not good or healthy growth. I don't think the local church was intended to be an organization that's so large that those who actually serve the enemy can come in undetected. I just don't think that's healthy. So when I, when I have a chance to stand before church planters and other pastors in our network and in our region, I, 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 I'm it's, it's launching a church of 200 on day one or 500 on day one is not something that I, I tell people we should celebrate by default. Many of those, I've seen that. I've seen a church plant start day one with 200 people and at least, I don't know, 40% of those were disgruntled people from other churches that had, they were just frustrated. They were, they were happy to have another option because they were angry about something at their church and they just brought the anger with them. It's like, Okay, that's what you need as a new church planter is a bunch of angry people coming, uh, you know. So as Americans, we're just so prone to look at the size of what's happening and congratulate people on it being a work of God. And I think we need to be more discerning than that. The unintended consequence of celebrating big with the assumption that it's always God is that the small plants and the small churches that are already steady on and faithfully growing inevitably receive the message, the unintended message that God has not blessed them as much. And I don't think that's true at all. I don't think it's true at all. There are unintended consequences of making a big deal out of big. Just a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this, we returned from Atlanta the very next day. I had to go back to Federal Way and I had, I had the opportunity to teach about a 20 to 30 minute breakout session at that event on church planting. And, um, yeah, it was, I just said, if you're, I said to the room, if you're committed to building disciples and developing leaders, you will multiply. It just might take longer than you want. If you're committed to it, if you're committed to building disciples, you will see growth. You will see multiplication. It's just going to be slow, slower than you want it to be. And I've had to re repent several times myself in the process that I, I I've diminished at times um, in my heart the working of God in the lives of the people of this church because I've embraced frustration because of the slow pace. I'm like, man, I want this thing to be bigger, you know? Especially in the early days, it's like, I don't, are, are, am I going to get a paycheck this month? I don't know. You know, it's just one of those, in, in, in my own heart, I've had to deal with this. And God reminded me of this lesson my dad taught me. Uh, when we lived in Athens, Georgia, we were doing campus ministry. My dad came up from Atlanta one day in his old red Ford pickup truck. And he parked, we opened the gate, he came into the backyard and we, he, he said, we're going to plant Leland cypress trees today. Because I needed a, a border on the back of the property because I could see into my neighbor's bathroom and I just didn't want to see their bathroom. And so <clears throat> dad came, he brought the saplings and uh, I mean, the little itty bitty uh, Leland cypress trees. And so we dug holes and and got all, you know, tended the holes and got them in. And then once we had packed the soil in and, and we're kind of wrapping up, he said, now, um, do you know anything about Leland cypress trees? And I said, uh, no. So let me just tell you one thing. Sleep, creep, leap. That's great. Uh, it's onomatopoeia. What does that mean, Dad? He said, the first year, these trees are going to look like they're asleep. You're not going to see anything happening on the visible part of that tree. You will question whether or not it's alive or doing anything. And it is. And everything that's happening is in a place that you can't see. It's underground. It's putting out roots. He said the second year it's going to creep. You'll see a little bit of growth, a little bit of change above ground, but still the majority of the life of this tree is underground and it's still spreading out, still getting itself established in a way that you can't see. And then in that third year, he said, this tree's going to leap up and it's going to fill out 
and it's going to blow you away. You won't even believe that it's the same tree that we planted today. That's okay. I believe you. I take you at your word. And he was right. He was right. If you're committed to disciple building and developing leaders, you will multiply. It just might take a longer time to do it. There's stuff that has to happen in the heart of people or in the places that we can't see before all the stuff that we want to see comes to the fullness in the Spirit of God. And we've got to be patient. We've got to plant the seed. We've got to cultivate the soil. We've got to wait upon the Lord. So save yourself the heartache of buying into all the quick growth methodologies. There's no substitute for faithfully reading and studying God's Word and making the local church a priority in your life and in the life of your family. And I'll just leave you with this. Don't take my advice on the matter. Take Paul's advice on the matter. He's a much better church planner than I am. And he said this to the church at Galatia in chapter six. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived, which is to say you can be deceived. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that also he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And then he says this, and I love this admonition. And we'll just finish with this. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap. It's going to take some time. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we need you. Those, those all sound so good. That, that's such a good strategy, and, and we know that your word is true and right. But in our flesh, we still want fast. We still want it to go a little quicker. We want it to be a little bigger. Lord, would you just settle our hearts? Whatever the context is, whether that's uh, that conversation with the neighbor that's been going on for months and trying to get the gospel in, whether it's the coworker who's just totally opposed to Christianity and, and, and somebody's just praying for that coworker, what, whatever the situation, Lord, we just ask you for your grace to abound to us and to those that we're attempting to minister to. And Lord, I pray that you would fill your church with, um, with, with bravery and strength and, and we would not shrink back in fear. And we would take the gospel in these days. We can see the writing on the wall, just like uh, in, in the book of Daniel. We can see what's coming. We don't know how fast it's all coming, but Lord, we want to be found faithful before you. We want to scatter the seed of the gospel. We want to cultivate the soil that's all around us. And Lord, would you help us to know the best ways to do that in these dark days? We ask it in your name. Amen. In our flesh, we tend to obsess over big things in the church world. We miss many of the things that God's doing in the small things. And things in the normal mundane every life is working in small places in small ways things he's doing in us and, and, and through average everyday people who aren't in the spotlight, who don't have prestige or fame or power. We just get our lines crossed when it comes to greatness and humility. So let's set it in our minds that Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived and there was no one more humble, thus no one more great than Jesus. And let's follow his example as we make disciples who make disciples, and may we all be found faithful in his presence when we stand before him. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.